Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. This is hour two of Mornings Without Carmen here on the 27th of January. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner. Delighted to be in studio with Paul Perot, as well as the many guests that are part of contributing to this program, bringing the mind of Christ into the headlines of the day here on the Faith Radio Network. Love being back with all of you as the listeners, too, all throughout our country, even some globally. It's so fun to hear the different people listening through the app or online, wherever you're streaming, and just be part of this big fabric of God's community Together, And uh, this is not the only show on the Faith Radio Network. I think many of you would know that. Uh, we have some unique and, and um, content that is original to the Faith Radio Network that happens, including Afternoons with Susie Larson uh, and uh, no, mid- Middays. I'm sorry. No, mid-days. no, 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 no. Susie Larson Live. Now. Susie Larson Live. Now yes. we changed the name of that. So, of course, yeah. many of you are going to know Susie and follow her program. She does such a great job with so many of the different guests and, and topics around our spiritual journey. And then Afternoons with Bill Arnold, that is on from 4 o'clock until 6 o'clock Central mm-hmm. Standard Time here in the Faith Radio Network. And Bill and I have had a chance to be together on Wednesday afternoon each week from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock Central Standard Time on a prayer series that has been going on somewhat indefinitely. We've been bringing in guests from around the world, uh, or around the country, I should say, people that are pretty well known and, and people, names that you would know as listeners as well, and thinking, let's get their expertise on prayer. And Paul, I think one of the really interesting things that's happened, show in and show out, is that these people, again, sort of luminaries in our faith, continue mm-hmm. to say something along the lines of, prayer is a real struggle for me. It's, re- it's something I really wrestle with. I don't have this whole thing dialed in. It, it's, it's, a, it's a grind a little bit. And so we've been talking about how to, what does it mean to cultivate a rich prayer life? Because it isn't the easiest thing mm-hmm. at the end of the day. No, it's not. And for me, for example, that the little thing that usually is in my pocket, my cell phone yes. keeps distracting. I mean, I'm so distracted. The squirrel factor is high <laughs> when it comes to prayer because you, you're trying to focus on God and yet there's so much screaming at you. Yeah. And tuning that out for a while and just trying to enjoy that communion is hard. It is hard. And and I think it's confusing about, so what do we do? Do we talk? Do we listen? Do we ask God to maybe help intercede in the circumstances of our life? Do we simply say, thy will be done and we'll trust and walk? I mean, there's a lot of questions at the end of the day about why we engage with prayer. And scripture has so many different passages about prayer. So to kind of weed our way through these things is not easy. Well, you just gave a list to do this or that or yes. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all of the above and then some. Yeah, so. indeed. Well, I want to encourage you to, to check out that prayer series this afternoon, again, live from five o'clock until six o'clock. Bill and I will be joined by Anne Graham Lotz, and Ooh. I'm sure that she, yeah, she'll probably have some great insight in some of this. And I'm curious if somebody, you know, again, another luminary, as it were, I'm just guessing that this has been quite a prayer journey for her as well to try to figure out how to step into a life of rich prayer and, and grow into all that. So again, catch that program on MyFaithRadio.com. You can go to all of the back episodes as well, or you can join us live from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock. I know we take your questions too, so you can chime in there. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Bill English, and Bill and I will talk a little bit about some of the changing 
language requirements that real estate agents have to engage with now in our culture. And we'll also go over his new book that will be coming out soon. And that, of course, is the intro to Bill English, who is here every Wednesday at this time on this morning's with Carmen show. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning. It is so good to be in the aura, the presence of <laughs> oh, the no. great Dr. Don't, Peter don't, 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 do, don't do that. Yeah, no, that's, just don't, that doesn't don't end well, do that. Bill. That, that kind of thing doesn't end well. It just inflates <laughs> the head a little bit too much here in the studio. Oh, it's, it is really good to hear your voice again. I know I just I've appreciated our conversations over the years about Bible and business. I run a business as well. And just what it means to be an, an ethical thinking Jesus following person in the midst of the business world is something I think a lot of people can sympathize with. And you do such a great job of helping shepherd people along the way. And there's a, quite a bit that we can get into this morning. I do want to talk a bit about your new book here coming up in just a few moments, but I was intrigued by headlines. We've been talking a little bit about language choices, and it does seem like linguistic choices in our country are always changing. We just got a text from a listener asking the question about basically, do we call people that we once would have maybe referred to as Native Americans and then maybe indigenous people and then First Nation people? How do we understand all of these choices? And things really do shift and change. And, and in regards to that, I was trying to follow Ruth Kramer's uh, lead in terms of how she was referencing people. But at what point, Bill, do we or do our linguistic choices become almost oppressive in that you better say and talk the right way or else we're going to sort of cancel you? We see some of that in the real estate market right now, don't we? Yeah, we do. The National Association for Realtors has passed a new ethical rule that says, and I'm quoting here, uh, realtors must, and this is both uh, personal and professional communications. Realtors must not use harassing speech, hate speech, epitaphs, slurs based on race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familial status, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So it's pretty comprehensive. And uh, NAR is basically saying if you're going to be a realtor and you're going to have access to the MLS systems, the multiple listing services that, that realtors use to find homes for people, uh, you can't. You have to really curb uh, what you say, both privately and publicly, and that is a very dangerous place for us to be. We're continuing to see private companies regulate speech, and uh, and really regulate thought, and that is not something that is going to bode well uh, for America, and it's not going to go bode well for us Christians either. And you are an observer of the private enterprise in our country, the businesses that do operate outside of the public sphere. And I'm guessing you've seen over the years, Bill, that when, when a certain momentum on something begins to take root, it begins to grow and it begins to, to change the way we do our life in these ways. And so what do you see in terms of something as, as big as the, the realtors network like this, having to change their language? That's something that might be adopted by other businesses relatively quickly. Yeah, it, this this is really a snowball right now going downhill. We saw it with Amazon and Twitter and Facebook on social media, really um, shutting down President Trump and others. That was the beginning of it. But those who supported Trump, like like uh, Mike Lindell, you know Mike uh, down in uh, right in the uh, yep. sub 
you know, my, my pillow in the southern parts. Um, he supported Trump. And so uh, his supply chain is – or not supply chain. His distribution channels are now uh, no longer selling his pillow because of his private speech. Not not because his pillows are bad. His pillows are fine. But because of his private speech, they're now – they're not carrying his product. So we're going to increasingly see, and this is also, by the way, associated with that whole brand purpose where people want to buy products from owners and, uh, and, and businesses that stand for certain social and political beliefs. And so we're starting to see both in the distribution channel and in the supply chains, uh, this orthodoxy that is uh, really politically based, it is uh, gender based, it is race based, it is individualistic based, getting imprinted onto businesses and saying, if you don't comply, if you don't, if you don't say the things that we want you to say, or not say the things that you shouldn't say, then, or or if you say things that that we don't think you should be saying, then we are going to no longer do business with you. Problem is, pri- private enterprises don't have to enforce free speech. That's only a government that has to enforce that. Private enterprise doesn't have to do that. And and you're seeing this. This is a snowball, Peter, and it's happening across America. It's happening quickly. It's going to negatively affect Christians uh, because I think you're smart enough to know this. Um, hate speech is going to become defined as anything that is controversial against um, uh, gender issues or race issues. And uh, and that's going to put Christians in a difficult position, at least on the gender issues. It really is, Bill. I'd be curious what your thoughts would be, advice, maybe some wisdom into the situation for the Christian business leader out there right now who is thinking about, do, do I resist these things for the sake of the gospel? Do I just need to stay quiet because I might have 10 or 20 or 1,000 employees under my care? And, and knowing that if I do speak up, it's going to risk their livelihood and maybe put them... Um, in, in a difficult place financially as well. How, how do we navigate this? Because I think Christians over the years have responded to persecution, and this is just barely the start of an actual kind of persecution. I get it, but but it is that. It, it went, When you are being discriminated against for your faith and you're seen as sort of being the evil dimension of our society, that being Christianity, things can change pretty quickly. So what advice do you have for Christian business leaders? Do they stay quiet? Do they stand up like Mike Lindell? What, what would you suggest? Uh, well, actually, I would suggest the Matthew 5 approach. Pray for those who persecute you. Do mm. good to them who who are against you. And uh, I, I would, you know, whether you get involved is really a personal uh, decision between you and the Lord. I don't have a blanket generalized uh, piece of advice on that. Here's what I will say. You better uh, start looking closely at your supply chain and your distribution channels. And I'm thinking manufacturing here. Of course, service-oriented companies are a little bit different. But you better start looking at your supply chain and distribution channels and say who is in that chain and start taking a look at how they're responding because they may come to you someday and say, we're not going to sell your product or we're not going to supply you with the paint you know, so you can paint your widgets. And, and you're going to need to have uh, – this is really risk mitigation at this point. You're going to need to have uh, other businesses to pivot to. And maybe you want to go ahead and start uh, uh, pivoting anyway. So, for example, if if in your supply chain you have a supplier who's who's doing eighty percent of part of your work in progress, part of your raw materials, um, I'm sorry, not work in progress, raw raw materials. Maybe you want to low balance that over three uh, vendors now, mm. and 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 you know 
cover your bets that way, so to speak. Yeah, super helpful advice, Bill English. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I definitely want to get into your book. I know it's been a work in progress for you for quite some time and exciting to come to the completion of this and tell our listeners a little bit more about it here next on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to the show. It's about 19 minutes after the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge for this week, and we're chatting with Bill English, great friend of the program who does such a good job with the intersection of biblical principles and living life as a business person in this world. And you also, Bill, are going to be a published author here shortly. Tell us about this book. Yeah, this is a book I've been working on uh, for a long time in one way or another, and uh, it's called The uh, Christian Theology uh, of Business Ownership. No one has written a book that I know of that talks about a theology, a biblically-based theology, about owning a business in America. And so that is what this book is about. So tell us uh, some of the main ideas that are underpinning the book. What are you inviting people to think about as a Christian business owner from a theological standpoint? I'm inviting the business owner to take a look at uh, his or her stewardship responsibilities before the Lord and to recast their ownership and stewardship um, uh, roles or words, you know, we, we talked about verbiage earlier, right? Right. And, uh, and the, and that that stewardship is all encompassing and that it is something that isn't just about good money management, but it's also about, uh, really living in a covenant relationship with God. I recast our, re- our personal relationship as a covenant relationship. And then I expand on that, uh, to talk about how we are going to reign with Christ, that our that our work here in on the earth is preparation for reigning with Him, and that uh, leading a, a business is something that um, is preparation for that, and is also good for for what we do here. Um, I talk a great deal about becoming free from the bondage of sin, because you're not going to be able to live in a covenant relationship well with God if you're living in sin. I talk about the five uh, foundational passages that I think are um, are necessary for understanding Christian stewardship, uh, and then I start to apply all this to uh, really core business relationships, partnerships, how we uh, our trusted advisors, how we give and receive advice and wisdom, and also how we engage the unseen world. How do we how do we do spiritual warfare and how do we hear the voice of God in decision making, those kinds of things. And then I wrap up the book by talking about the four purposes that God has for business and how to measure your business along those four purposes. Now one of them is profits, but there's other three. Uh, there's three other purposes that we also need to equally keep in tandem with the with the profits. So that's kind of a really uh, 100,000 foot overview of the book. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of great topics that could really empower people in their day to day life and business. And Bill, I want to pick up on that theme of stewardship that you referenced. I think when we think of stewardship, we so often think of financial stewardship, but there's a dimension of the Christian business owner that needs to be a personnel steward as as well, right? I was just talking in the business that I own with our general manager, and she and I were conversing about some of our employees and, and the idea that, yes, we are a business, and at the end of the day, we only will be a business to the extent that we're profitable and, and, and have a good bottom line, but how do we steward our employees so we're not treating them as if they are simply contributors to the bottom line or social security numbers or in this sort of transactional relationship? What does it mean to see the Imago Dei or the image of God in people that we work with? 
Yeah, and, and so building them up, <clears throat> right? So that when yeah. they, they're better off when they leave your business than when they come, not just financially, but they're better off professionally and personally as well. And so uh, I, I talk, that's one of the people is, is what I use, is the word I use is one of the four purposes of business. So I have products, people, profits, and philanthropy. Uh, and, and investing in people, growing people, being good to them is one of the core uh, purposes for business. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of philanthropy, how do you get started as a business? If you do want to begin to give, we talked with Ruth Kramer at the at the end of last hour, hour one on this show, and, and she had the encouragement to go ahead and, and as you see the needs in the world around us, just pray about it. It's amazing how quickly God opens doors. What do you suggest as a business if you want to get started with beginning to give some of the resources away? What are some great practical first steps? Obviously prayer about where to go with the money, but then what do you do from there to steward the opportunity in the best way possible? You know, I'm going to take that a little bit different direction because um, over half of the people in America who attend church regularly never give. They never give financially. Interesting. And so uh, this is really a hard issue. And so if, if you want to start giving, you first have to have your heart changed. The last thing to come, I, I'm, I'm finding this, that the last thing to come into alignment with God when a person is moving towards God is their money. Hmm. And when they're moving away from God, the first thing that goes away or that comes out of alignment is their money. And that's why Christ said in Matthew 6, show me where your money is and I'll show you what you love, hmm. right? You show me where you spend it, I'll show you what you love. So philanthropy is about loving God. It's about getting our, our affections aligned with him. In fact, I, I go so far as to say in the introduction of the book, I'm just going to quote one, one sentence here. I say, financial generosity is the solution to so many problems in our churches and the individual lives of our members that it is difficult to overstate or exaggerate the importance of becoming generous towards him. Mm. This financial generosity uh, uh, and the lack thereof uh, in, our, in our churches is huge. Business owners have a unique stewardship responsibility because God entrusts us with a revenue-generating engine, right? Right. And so we're the ones who should be leading the way in generosity. We're the ones who should be saying, I'm not just tithing, I'm generous. I'm, I'm giving 30, 40, 50 percent, right? Because a lot of times we have the cash to do it. So uh, this generosity is so important to the to the spiritual maturity of, of the individual believer and the church that its importance cannot be overstated. How do you do that? You get your heart aligned with God, and then you open up your hand and you say, whatever you want, God, I will give it away. Wherever you want me, I will give it away. Look, wealth is a renewable resource. Business owners, we know how to make money, right? That's what we do. So let's not hold on to it. Let's give it away and let's keep making more so that we can keep building the kingdom of God here on earth. I think it's an incredible invitation there, Bill, that you just said that that usually the last thing to come in alignment is our money. It just makes me think about the temple in Israel in the Old Testament, that in the Holy of Holies, within the presence of God, they had three sacred objects. They had the Ark of the Covenant with the law of God. They had the staff of Moses that through which the miracles of God set them free. And then they had the jar of manna, right? And that was in the wilderness that God brought to them. And if they tried to save up that jar of manna for the future, the next morning it was filled with worms and maggots and, and it couldn't be stored. And I think money is that place that we look towards to secure our future. And God is always teaching us, take your hands off the money, take your hands off of that as, as a secure means for the future. And just trust me as you follow. Well, great stuff as always. When is the book coming out? Do you have a, a date for this? 
Uh, yeah, it'll be published. It'll be available for electronic download at Amazon and the like Barnes and Noble and other places on February 15th. I, I finished my review of the manuscript uh, in the next few days, and then I got two weeks to get it published. Oh, so great. Well, great to catch up with you again. Thanks for the great wisdom as always, Bill. I'm sure we'll chat soon. You bet. Thanks, Peter. Have a good day. Yeah, I'll we'll take a short break for Breakpoint and some bottom of the hour news. And for the last part of our show in the last half an hour of this hour, we're going to be joined by authors Cameron and Stuart McAllister with the book Faith That Lasts, a father and son on cultivating lifelong belief. We do have a giveaway drawing as well. So cue up the text line. Be ready for that. And you know how much Paul Perot loves to see emojis on the text line as well. You know, Paul, I love these bottom-of-the-hour news updates. It gives us a chance to get into some different kinds of headlines and what is a, a, an understandably serious program as we talk about things that really matter in this world. But we try to be. We do. We do indeed. But you grew up on a dairy farm from what I understand. Yes, I did. You did indeed. So you're familiar with cows, I'm sure. And, and the disruption that a cow familiar can bring. familiar with cows and well, their disruptions, yes. You know, it's one thing in a pasture and in a meadow to have a cow disrupt something. But we see that a loose cow brought traffic to a halt on a Georgia highway ramp. It says that... Uh, in this, the Savannah Police Department on eastbound Interstate 16 was closed when a cow wandered into the highway and animal control officers were summoned to help capture the bovine. And you, as a lover of puns, Paul Perot, the department tweeted out this. Thanks for your patience while we move it out of the way. We can all no, see this coming, no, right? No, 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 no. We can see that one coming. I, I, I read this beforehand and I, I thought it was terrible. I, I guess my beef about is that some public safety guy tried to milk the situation with an utterly obvious and horrible pun. Uh, the beef and the utterly, that was well spotted, Paul Rowe. We better leave it right there. We'll take a short break, come back with authors Cameron McAllister and Stuart McAllister talking about a book, Faith That Last, Father and Son Cultivating a Lifelong Belief. This is Max Locato. Everyone stumbles. The difference is in the response. Some stumble into the pit of guilt. Others tumble into the arms of God. They make a deliberate decision to stand up and lean into the grace of God. Just like you, the prodigal son was given an inheritance. He was a member of the family. Perhaps just like you, he squandered it on wild living and bad choices. His trail dead-ended in a pig pen. He fed hogs for a living. Then he made a decision that changed his life forever. I will arise and go to my father. Luke 15 and verse 18. You can do that. You can arise and go to your father. Maybe you can't solve all your problems or disentangle all your knots. You can't undo all the damage you've done, but you can arise and go to your father. Landing in a pig pen stinks, but friend, staying there is just plain stupid. This is Max Locato. Well, it is definitely time to open up that text line right now at 877-933-2484 because we have a couple of authors here that are going to be joining us in just a moment. It's Stuart and Cameron McAllister on their book, Faith That Lasts, A Father and Son on Cultivating Lifelong Belief. I think we have about three-ish or so copies of this book and to give away, right. Paul. Yeah. That's about right. And so you can be entered into a drawing to get one of these copies. You're not going to want to miss out. You can text BOOK, B-O-O-K, into the studio here over the next 15 or so minutes at 877-933-2484 to be entered into the drawing. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. Good morning. 
It's great to have you guys here. I know you guys both have worked and do work for the Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, Stuart, you've been a global support specialist for them. I know, Cameron, you speak as an itinerant uh, minister in in that organization as well. And I'm curious, uh, Stuart, let's start with you. This is a book that talks about passing on belief generationally a bit. What kind of prompted this book for you just in terms of your own relationship with Cameron, maybe the rest of the family, all of that? Well, I think a couple of things. One was, you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home, and and I brought into the Christian faith a kind of a little bit of a fear, a sense of the baggage that I had come from in the parenting, and then having kids and raising a Christian home, I hadn't seen models or been trained in how do you raise uh, Christian kids. So I was a little bit of a fear that I might inoculate my kids either by my bad example, hmm. and I I was also a little bit concerned. I didn't want to turn them into Christian clones, if you know what I mean. Yes, and and. Uh... In ter- what in some of the principles of that, then, what did you say? These are some of the most helpful things that I have learned to not turn my kids into Christian clones or just have them play the game of Christianity, as it were, but to have a rich and a vibrant faith. What are some things that you think about related to that? Well, I think for me, um, before we actually started writing the book, the, the issues where we're looking at really that being a Christian was having a culture in your home where there was the issue was the issue of the heart. How could we? How could I win my kids' hearts? Not just their minds. I wanted to get them facts and the the truths of the Christian faith, but I wanted them to love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. And in the daily uh, give and take of life, that's a much harder thing to achieve. So, creating a climate in which there was question-friendly zones in our home where we could deal with doubts about Christianity, doubts about God, uh, deal with conflict in relationships, try and create a place and a space where we really could be real and honest before God, because that's what we felt the truth would demand. Hmm, Cameron, we'll come to you in just a second, but Stuart, one more follow-up. I think you just used a phrase I've never heard before, which is question-friendly zone. So tell us a little bit about a question-friendly zone. What, what did that look like week in and week out in your household? Well, we we had cultivated a thing that we wanted that we knew the kids would have doubts about God or the question things like the problem of evil would come up later when they were older. But children questioned, so we wanted to make sure that whether it was their bedtime stories or at the table, the kids could ask us any questions, and that we would never treat things, whether it was about sex or whatever it was, as being strange or out of the pale. But we would try and find a way and encourage them if you had something you saw something or you wanted something ask us and we will do our best to either give you an answer or find one so we didn't want to make anything that they had to question as an act of well that's rebellion or that's anger or that's doubt but this was a context in which you could we could deal with their heart and their minds and try and win them together towards a deeper understanding Cameron, and I'm sure none of these words are familiar with you, right? Like the words like rebellion or doubt or anything like that. I'm sure it was just a, it was a seamless growing up, right? Really easy to to do that in today's world. Absolutely, I was just a model <laughs> citizen of heaven, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, tell us about what it was like just growing up in in some of these question free zones, but just also some of the challenges. The world is a different different place for sure over these last 20, 30 years. To, to grow up as a person of faith, a lot of doubt is going to naturally begin to creep in, especially as we collide with cultures around the world that see God or gods differently and, and maybe worship in different ways and secularization, all of these trends. What did it mean to to walk through this journey of doubt and into faith and, and what you've experienced with that? Well, absolutely. Well, speaking of other cultures, I was actually born on the mission field in Vienna, Austria. Austria, not Australia. This is the place where the hills are live. <laughs> right, the sound, the sound of music. music, exactly. Right. So in 1998, we moved to the States. I was 
you know, 14 years old. That's a tough age to begin with. And I went from a school of 126 kids in Austria to a high school of nearly 4,000. At the time, it was the largest high school in the nation. Hmm. And what what I was unprepared for at the time was what we would call cultural Christianity, because we moved here to the Atlanta area, so we are officially in the Bible Belt South. And Austria is a nominally Catholic nation now. There's this rich heritage, but it's largely secular. So in Austria, you either are a Christian or you are not. There isn't really any comfortable middle ground. But suddenly I came into an environment where everybody was a Christian, no matter what they did or what they said. And that presented a little bit of cognitive dissonance for me eventually. Mm. But ironically, what ended up happening was instead of me taking kind of a critical glance at this, I, for a while there, I think looking back, I can say I was honestly being seduced into a way of thinking that essentially told me what our culture tells, tells us all the time, that you are your own, you call the shots, you control your life. The odd thing was that I didn't see any, I didn't see any tension there with my stated Christian convictions. And this is kind of what, to, what goes back to what my dad was saying about the heart. I could have told you all of the right answers. I could have given them to you on paper. I could have scored well on a theology exam, but my heart was elsewhere. And so really my journey in the United States as a young person culminated in the kitchen one morning, the same kitchen we're in right now, ironically, <laughs> where my dad looked right at me when I was a high schooler. And he just asked me, why do you call yourself a Christian? And it just stunned me because I didn't have a clear answer. And he was he wasn't getting he wasn't asking me for what I knew. He was asking me what had my heart. And that question, it wasn't a light switch moment, but it made all the difference in the long run. Uh, the incredible story, Cameron, and that idea, I think, that a lot of, of people can sympathize with, especially people who maybe grew up in one of the Protestant streams of our faith. And there's so much good that happened in the Protestant Reformation in terms of reteaching what was true from a scriptural standpoint. But I was talking to the theology buddy of mine over dinner last night, and he was saying that one of the legacies of the Protestant Reformation that maybe uh, was was uh, caused a little weakness in our faith. It was such an emphasis on heady truth, simply true statements without the relationship. And and we sort of lost then the dimension of the communion table where people gathered in relationship with one another and with Jesus at the center of the table, that we lived a life of richness that was both heart and head and relationship all together. So is that some of what happened in your life as a move towards relationship? These things are true, but you began to enter into a living relationship? Oh, yes. You and your theologian friend are speaking our language there. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Because at the heart of Christianity is not just propositional, informational knowledge. That's important. I would say that's necessary, but not sufficient. But it is a relationship with the person of Christ. And if you're in a relationship that has everything to do with the heart, and I think it was also part of the what, what needs to happen is a recovery of a more robust understanding of what we mean by heart— and fortunately, we've had a lot of people doing that in recent years, notably James K.A. Smith, particularly in his cultural liturgy series, which we draw on a lot. But essentially, the heart is the very center of a person, their will, the core of who they are. And what our book really seeks to do once we move past the critical portion in the beginning is to address the heart and really help parents to walk forward in wisdom and discernment rather mm. than just with techniques and strategies, which is such a modern habit. 
Uh, it's great information. If you're listening this morning, uh, I just can't recommend this book highly enough. And we do have three copies that we can give away, get into the drawing here as well. So text book into the studio at 877-933-2484. Again, and the name of the book is Faith That Lasts, A Father and Son on Cultivating Lifelong Belief. It's Cameron and Stuart McCow. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Stuart a little bit about what he learned about this living faith and relationship with Jesus as he was at one point in prison for distributing Bibles in Yugoslavia. So stay with us. More to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. It is 11 minutes for the top of the hour here on the 27th of January and having a delightful, informative conversation with Cameron and Stuart McAllister and their book, Faith That Last. Again, one more time, you can text the studio at 877-933-2484. If you're a person that wants to and text the word book into that number, if you're a person who is thinking about what it means to pass faith along generationally, and, and I know it's not a perfect one-to-one relationship that a father or a grandfather or a mother or grandfather's faith is going to pass down, but just some ways in which we can think about this generational opportunity in this great story of God's ongoing redemption of this world. It's a great book for that. And so, Stuart, I mentioned before the break that you were at one point it, in a Yugoslavian prison, and, and I guess I've seen enough Tom Clancy movies along the way that I can't imagine it was the most pleasant experience for you. No, it was very. Uh, it was a very. Big, it was in the south of a place called Skopje. Um, the jail was uh, called the Idrisovo Jail on the outskirts. And, and when they arrested us, they um, they left us sitting in the sun, baking in a car for about an hour. Or so we were cooked and sweaty. Oh. Then they shaved off all our hair and put these old military uniforms on us. So. Yeah, it was a pretty primitive experience to begin with. Yeah. And what did you, what would you say you learned? Just we were talking a little bit about the move from propositional truth or those things that we say that we believe to an ongoing relationship. I'm guessing at that point, truth about the kingdom mattered, but but there is a sense that oh, God better be real, or else I'm in real trouble here. Yeah. Well, I think I was a young believer at the time. I'd, I'd only been a Christian for just about a year and a half, and and uh, you know, the, of course, they took everything away. We were thrown into a major prison, of course, with foreigners who so we didn't speak the language. I think the reality of prayer, God's presence, um, we prayed as the three of us that were in the same prison, we prayed every day, and then the two older Christians had memorized Bible verses. We wrote them down in, in a book, and we used that for sort of daily devotions. And I think every day we just sensed that really the power and the presence of God was with us. You know, it wasn't, it's not magical in, in some sense, but it's mm-hmm. just a sense of peace and presence that really makes a difference, you know? Yeah, it really does to, to, to move into that place of relationship. The the scriptures clearly indicate that there are things that happen in our life, like those words you describe, peace or joy in circumstances that otherwise don't make sense. It's, it's part of the beauty of the witness. I would suggest for those interested in apologetics that as much as we need to argue those things that are true, a, a lived real life of those kinds of fruits of the Spirit really, it, it, it bears witness in ways that almost nothing else can. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Cameron, I'd be curious for you. I know that uh, the situation in our world changes week in and week out, year in and year out in terms of what Christianity needs to address, what matters of our faith tend to matter from generation to generation. I know when I'm with my young people here at the university where I teach that their questions and their ways of talking about the faith really are different than mine. And yet there's certain things generation to generation to generation that simply they may change in the way they express themselves but they don't really change at the end of the day. So when we talk about a faith that lasts and passing around generationally, what can you think about from your father that you would say, hey, it may look a little different in today's world, but wow, this is simply also true as of today. Absolutely. 
Well, talking to younger people and speaking as a relatively younger person myself, I think you're right. The questions on the one hand, some of those questions that come up over and over again are fairly perennial, the problem of evil or the exclusivity of Christ, the evidence for the resurrection, these kinds of issues. But they do get expressed in kind of different terms or with different sensibilities. And I would say that broadly speaking now, there's a much more existential kind of tone to a lot of the questions that come. And it's much more, I would say, holistic. So it's not just so much, does this line, is this true? Do the facts fit reality? But also, is a Christian way of life a good way of life? Does it actually promote human flourishing? And I think for me, one of the really important features of my childhood, and look, my parents were not perfect. There are no perfect parents. <laughs> and parents, again, I'm just going to tell you a hard truth. There's a reason why the subtitle of this book is not how to fix your kid in seven <laughs> easy steps. Because your child is in possession of a human heart, and the heart is a mystery to all of us. The only person who has access to the heart is Christ alone. But what my mom and dad did do was model very consistently their Christian convictions in word and in deed. You know, Christianity is as much caught as it is taught. And I over, so much of what I basically overheard and what I, when I was able to sort of creep on them and see them in their devotional moments, prayer, for instance, was a vital part, is a vital part of my parents' household. It always was. It wasn't just restricted to meals. It wasn't just some formal ritual. This had to do, my, my parents went to God when we experienced any form of conflict or when we experienced joy, they celebrated with God too. So God was not a last resort. He wasn't fire insurance. And so when my dad asked me that question to go back to that, why do you call yourself a Christian son? That question carried considerable spiritual authority because I knew it was coming from a man who truly believed what he said he believed. And so that was the dynamic in, in our household. Wasn't an instant fix, didn't preclude troubles with me and my sister, but in the long run, it turned out to be the most definitive and the most healing. Hmm. Stuart, I'm guessing this isn't exactly breaking news that you were not the absolute perfect father, right? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think I lived with a constant almost. I think every dad does. I think we all feel. I mean, you send who trains you to be a parent? You live with an adequate. <laughs> you're also aware of your sort of problems, and I think men particularly deal with issues of of their maybe their temper, their anger, and also with communication, how to talk uh, peacefully and quietly. So one of the things with my kids, I was desperate to make sure that I didn't let my volatility. Uh, or, you know, dominate them, intimidate them or silence them and let them speak back, even mm. if they provoked, you know, to anger that I didn't want to then come back hostilely to them, you know? Yeah, I, boy, I, I think a lot of fathers can resonate with that in, in terms of maybe taking out some of the pressures they might be feeling and, and going sideways with it. And I just can't recommend this book enough. We've got to leave it right there, gentlemen. I wish we could talk longer. I've got a million more questions, but so glad that you've written this book. Again, if you're listening this morning, you can text the studio at 877-933-2484 with the word book, and you'll be entered into a drawing where we have a few copies of this to give away. Otherwise, just go to Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Christian Book, wherever you want to go. Uh, the book is being sold on all these different channels. Again, Faith That Lasts, A Father and Son on Cultivating Lifelong Belief. Gentlemen, have a great rest of the day. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 27th of January.
Paul, I am still reeling from the news. I'm a bit staggered by the idea that parents uh, may not be perfect. I don't have any response to that. I'm just <laughs> shaking my head right now. I mean, what shaking a, my head. Right. What an invitation from Stuart yeah. uh, to be able to say that out loud. I think that that idea of humility and a recognition that to, to be one who allows your kids to catch some of that faith is to, to be somebody who operates out of humility, that operates out of a, a daily devotion, whether it's in the quietness of your kitchen table, whatever it looks like as you model these sorts of things. It, it, it takes me back to our first conversation we had in the show right at the top of the 6 o'clock Central Hour with Justin Jepson, where we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are those that, those that maybe know they don't have it all together as parents mm-hmm. because you begin to model something different for your kids. It, it's it's how do I say? It? It's just the great starting point. That that uh, position of I know I don't have it all. God, right. you are what I need. Yeah. So. I, I, if we didn't start there, why would we need Amazing Grace? How sweet <laughs> exactly. the sound, right? You know. And so, what's encouraging you to think about the idea that we can be blessed and whole in the midst of our impoverishment, not because that state in and of itself is blessedness, but because it then drives us to the Savior, who can truly bring completeness and wholeness into our lives, regardless of the circumstances around us. For the Lord is our shepherd. I have everything that I need for wholeness in this world. It's what it means to flourish. Flourish is not dependent on the circumstances. It's dependent upon the wholeness that our Savior brings. Thanks for listening again today. We'll catch you tomorrow on Mornings Without Carmen. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.